as has been mentioned already this morning, what a great blessing it is to be able to assemble and to gather. God has certainly looked upon us with such favor to permit us health and the disposition of mind to do this. And we're so thankful for the presence of our members, of course, and any visitors that have come our way. We want you to know that we're appreciative of the presence of every person. Our desire is to worship God in spirit and in truth, John 4, 24. As we strive to do that, we've arrived at a portion of our service in which the oracles of God is that which is our concentration. It's our desire to speak that alone, 1 Peter 4, 11. I would hope for the next few minutes you and I can give some appreciation to a lesson I've entitled, Does It Matter What You Believe? That particular question already probably has a resounding answer in your mind and mine, but I hope that as we give some consideration to it, we'll be reminded about the fact of just how different sometimes the thought and the presentation of the world might well be. It might well be in light of that that these introductory thoughts would be in order. First of all, I'm sure we each would readily agree that the thought of belief and even the thought of faith are vastly significant in the Word of God. Maybe it would be interesting to note that the word believe or some form of that verb occurs an astounding 324 times in the King James Version of the Bible. In addition to that, the word faith or some form of it occurs an astounding 247 times in the Word of God. And you and I are often reminded of the significance and the demand of God for those things. You'll notice again, does it matter what you believe? You'll notice in those observations, surely a person has to be a believing person. A person has to be a person described in some way as faithful. But question, does it matter what you believe? Does it matter the source or subject of faith? You and I well know that the world and those with whom you and I sometimes have conversation brings us to observations like this. You and I know well that we seemingly live in an age of great tolerance, not only in matters extra-religious, but even in matters of religion. That tolerance and that acceptance sometimes leads to the claim that you'll notice near the top of that slide. Someone who has a different viewpoint on the Bible than you or than me might well say, well, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're earnest and as long as you're sincere and as long as you follow with dedication what you do believe, it doesn't matter what you believe. Maybe you've heard that statement. Maybe you've heard others at least make some statement or comment similar to it. Our study today will be basically to address the claim. Does the Bible uphold that claim? Does the Bible set before us the foundation that indeed all that ultimately matters is earnestness and sincerity and that the actual doctrine does not matter? I believe we're going to find the answer to be that which you've already perhaps appreciated in your mind. But I believe the study of it will be very beneficial to all of us, reminding us not only about this great faith of which you and I, of course, have to which we've been called, but at the bottom of that slide, you'll notice we're going to make several applications. Might I ask you to think of these three in particular first. When it comes to the plan of salvation, that is to say, when it comes to the very matter by which an individual is saved, does it matter what you believe? Second matter, 
in regarding the nature of the church, does it matter what your understanding is or does it matter your appreciation of the very nature of that body of Christ? Does it really matter? Finally, what about the matters of the Christian life? Once I've become a Christian, once I have basically become a member of the body of Christ, does it then still matter what I believe? As we look at all of these, I think we'll be greatly encouraged in our faith and greatly encouraged to appreciate that that which the Scripture set before us is a timeless reminder that it does matter what you believe. As we start that journey, why don't we take them in the order I've tried to list them. As we do that, we're going to select several passages. I hope you have your Bible available. We'll be doing a quite a bit of reading this morning. We're going to start basically in the 19th chapter of the book of Acts. Let me encourage you to come to that location. Remember our first question. Does it matter what you believe in relation to the plan of salvation? In the 19th chapter of the book of Acts, we encounter a very stirring scene in which the Apostle Paul is critically involved in that which is one of the acts of salvation. Let's begin reading in verse number 1, and we'll read through the first seven verses of this chapter, Acts 19, verses 1 through 7. And it came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coasts, came to Ephesus, and finding certain disciples, he said unto them, Have you received the Holy Ghost since ye believed? And they said unto him, We have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. And he said unto them, Unto what then were you baptized? And they said, Unto John's baptism. Then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Ghost came on them, and they spake with tongues and prophesied. And all the men were about twelve. All of us would readily appreciate the fact that one of the parts of the plan of salvation is baptism. A student of the New Testament is so easily appreciative of that truth. Jesus Himself said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, Mark 16, 16. As we then proceed through the book of Acts, we notice time and again that these individuals who were desirous of being a part of that family of God, they were baptized. That leads us to some of these comments. When we arrive at the 19th chapter of Acts, we are a bit astonished when we find 12 men in the city of Ephesus these 12 men, we are told, had been baptized at some point. But a problem arose. A circumstance developed. And I've tried to highlight it like this. I might ask you to notice verse number 2 again and the powerful questions that, John, that rather Paul asked them. Have ye received the Holy Ghost since ye believed? Question, had these people believed? The text says they believed something. Did it matter what they believed in terms of being satisfactory before the great God of heaven? Did it matter what they believed? Well, notice what transpired next. Paul asked another leading question, verse number 2. It had to do with the Holy Ghost. Had they received it? And they quickly replied, We haven't even heard whether there be any Holy Spirit or not. In the aftermath of that, Paul then asked this question, Unto what then were you baptized? 
the fact that they'd been baptized was not a matter of consideration. They clearly had been, but Paul says, Unto what then were you baptized? They quickly replied, Unto John's baptism. They were baptized under the baptism administered by John the Baptist. You and I will remember that that was a pertinent part of that early New Testament description in Matthew and Mark and Luke. But we notice that that baptism was one that John himself had quickly affirmed. I must decrease and he must increase. John chapter 3 verse 30. As John then spoke about the one coming after him, that one far greater than he, the latchet of whose shoes he, John said, was not worthy even to unloose. Paul then remedied this situation in verses 3 and 4 by making a proclamation. He taught these disciples. He taught them about the fact that John spoke about one after him greater than he. He taught them the fact that that baptism administered by John was not the perfect, all-encompassing baptism for their salvation of sins that was now effective under the New Testament era. As Paul explained those matters to them, look at the simple words that begin verse number 5. When they heard this... They were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Here were individuals, 12 men, who though formerly had been baptized under the baptism of John, they now were baptized under the baptism of Christ. Made authoritative, of course, by His death, His burial, His resurrection in the gospel based upon His teaching. When those observations are made, might we again pause. Did it matter what these 12 disciples believed? Had they been the recipients of all the glorious goodness made available through the Holy Spirit? Clearly not. Because afterward, you notice in verse number 6, when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Ghost came on them. And they spake with tongues and prophesied, by the laying on of the hands of Paul, these now were capable of those spiritual gifts, including prophecy and speaking in tongues. Finally, verse 7 tells us there were about 12 of them. Does it matter what they believed in terms of salvation and the blessings that came by virtue of the baptism, of course, into the body of Christ? You and I have to overwhelmingly say what they believed made a difference. Even as it related to their standing before the God of heaven, they were remiss those great beneficial blessings of the Holy Spirit. Now, my we bring that consideration to today. You and I live, of course, roughly 20 centuries this side of those events in Acts 19. Does it still matter what a person believes in its relation to the plan of salvation, in relation to being saved? Does it matter? You and I know very well that it does. That's the reason it's such critical, of such critical importance to understand then the nature of what one believes. You and I as older ones, our children as younger ones, may we never forget it does matter. That's why we see Jesus saying it like this in Matthew 28. All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations. So here is instruction, here is teaching, and it is to be available to all nations. What's the hopeful benefit of it? Notice again, beginning in verse 18. All power given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. That teaching 
hopefully will result in their appreciation of the truth of God and baptism submissively into the body of Christ. Notice what follows. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. There's instruction both before and after baptism. There's teaching both before and after that momentous event. Why? Because it does matter what one believes. When you and I think then about some of the teachings of our world, notice again, some will say, it doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter whether you believe repentance is vital, confession is vital, baptism is essential. It doesn't matter as long as you're earnest. Those folks are mistaken in that. The Son of God died on the cross that He might put in place His doctrine. The New Testament over and again highlights the doctrine of Christ. And might we observe this? It's 2 John 9. Whoever does not remain in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. Now that's a serious consequence. I think we'd all agree how important it is to be in the doctrine of Christ. We've noticed then at this moment, it does matter in relation to the plan of salvation what we believe. There is a truth of God, but doesn't that prompt us to the second question we raised earlier? That question is this one, isn't it? What about the nature of the church itself? So suppose an individual does submit to a plan of salvation of sort and then has affiliation with some kind of church. Does it matter what kind? Does it matter its details, the specifics of it, or the character which it has? You'll notice at the top of this slide some initial comments that I would ask you to consider with very interesting seriousness. The text to which we'll turn is the very one that Dennis read for us earlier. In 1 Timothy 4, beginning in verse number 1, let me ask you to look at that passage with me. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly, that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. Already, even before we complete that discussion, might I ask you to notice the word believe is found near the close of verse 3. There is something to be noted, a belief, but you and I will note the object of that in just a minute. For right now, may I ask you to appreciate the Holy Spirit makes a powerful statement here. The Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times. Where are these latter times and to what point in time does that refer? Maybe some additional guidance is provided in the words of Acts 2 verses 16 and 17. In particular, on that Pentecost day when Peter with such majesty and power stood before them and he said, This is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel, that in the last days, the last days. The last days began then on the day of Pentecost. They began on that day the church was established. Those last days had their origination on that occasion. May then I submit, you and I have been living in the last days now all of our lives, and these last days have been existent since the days of Acts chapter 2. Paul thus wrote on this occasion, The Spirit's telling us that in these last days, this last dispensation of time, 
Some are going to depart from the faith. That already makes a powerful suggestion. The language again, some shall depart from the faith. There is a body of doctrine. There is a body of consideration that is recognized as the faith, not a faith, not some faith, but the faith. And there are those who would depart from it. The Greek word depart, just as you would suspect, means to go away from or to leave. Some would not remain faithful and in a matter of fidelity to that faith. No wonder in light of that, that takes us to these observations. Paul even lists some of the features of that which these individuals who depart from the faith would teach. He says, verse number 1, they'll give heed to seducing spirits. A seducing spirit is a persuasive one. It is a deceiving spirit. It is a body of teaching or a particular consideration separate from that faith. And notice it's doctrines of devils. The word doctrine means teaching. It has to do again with a particular message that's revealed or taught. Here, doctrines of devils. It already sounds very ominous, doesn't it? As the text goes on, it says, These will speak lies and hypocrisy. They'll have their conscience seared with a hot iron. Forbidding to marry will be one of the things they'll teach. Commanding to abstain from meats. Now might we observe this thought. The church, it seems, throughout her history has always had to face false doctrine or teaching that is in fact of the devil. Does it matter what you believe? If it truly doesn't matter what you believe, why would a passage like this one be in the Bible? What would it matter if one departed from a faith? Because apparently any other is just as good. Why would it matter about a particular doctrine of the devil? That's a belief as surely as any other. The fact is, it does matter exceedingly, doesn't it? Maybe as you look at the close of verse number 3, listen to Paul as he summarizes. Things are to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know something in particular. The truth. There is a body recognized as the truth. That is what is to be believed. That is what is to be upheld. That which is not of the truth, again, is what has been departed in the sense of what these had done. To believe and know the truth. Look at these additional thoughts that challenge you and me. Isn't it true that that was a frequent part of the New Testament admonition? I would call to your attention Jude verse number 3. When Jude wrote that little one-chapter book nestled near the close of the New Testament, it was on that occasion he admonished the brethren to contend earnestly for the faith. What? The faith which was once for all time delivered to the saints. The actual Greek rendering is what I just noted. To contend earnestly for that which once for all time was delivered. Never any modifications to it, never any changes to it, never anything whereby it is morphed into something else. It was rigidly fixed at the time of its delivery. Jude wrote, contend for that. Does it sound like it's important what you believe? It surely does, doesn't it? Maybe in light of that, why don't we revisit that famous passage in Ephesians 4. As Paul addressed the church in Ephesus, again, a body of Christians, he told them, there's one body. 
Now that all by itself is a powerful observation, but there's one body. He went on then to quickly affirm, in addition to that, that one body additionally leads us to note this. There's also one faith. Notice verse number 5. Now the oneness, the uniqueness of that faith is a matter that Paul highlighted to the Ephesians. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. When you and I then give thought to the oneness of that faith, doesn't it lead us again to notice it does matter what one believes? And for those reasons, a whole host of verses take on a whole additional significance, such as Romans 16, verse number 17. As Paul closed that Roman letter, he wrote to those brethren and admonished them to watch with great care the features of the doctrine. In fact, as Paul wrote that to them, they were told especially to mark them which cause divisions contrary to the doctrine which you've received and avoid them. The brethren in Rome were to make observation of what fit into that doctrine and what didn't. They were to mark and avoid. Doesn't that remind us? It mattered in Rome what they believed. It mattered in Ephesus what they believed. And it even mattered in Thessalonica what they believed. 2 Thessalonians 2.15 Paul admonished those brethren to hold fast the traditions which they'd received. Those traditions representative of the truth of the gospel. So, one by one, cities in Thessalonica, Rome, Ephesus, and yea, many others were such that it didn't matter what they believed. Maybe one final set of thoughts on that page would take us to that unforgettable statement of the Master himself. As he spoke with some Jews in the 8th chapter of John, ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Isn't it still sweet that you and I have the truth? It is that which is before you on your lap, or maybe that which you're looking at on your electronic device, but it's the truth. You and I notice it's an unforgettable and irreplaceable thing. There is no substitute for it. It does matter what one believes with respect to the plan of salvation, and it does matter what one believes with respect to the church. One couldn't be a faithful member of the body of Christ then and have these beliefs that Paul described in 1 Timothy 4. The last thought we introduced earlier, though, was this one. What about the Christian life? Maybe in light of that, let's turn the page to the next one. The Christian life, and to that we'll revisit the 15th chapter of Matthew. Please go back to that location with me as we interestingly recollect the statements made by Jesus. Perhaps a little bit of introduction would be in order because on this occasion, Jesus again was in conversation with some who had questions about what He taught. You may even notice in verse number 1, the scribes and Pharisees immediately were the audience. The particular teaching had to do with the support of parents and those who were aged along that line. And they were saying, it is Corbin, and thereby, and thereby excusing themselves from actually taking care of their aged parents. Notice again, this is a matter of, of life in terms of being pleasing to God. But isn't it amazing how Jesus couched the answer? He didn't just simply say to them, you're mistaken about your appreciation. Look at His development. Verse number 7, Ye hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, 
This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. As we develop some considerations about that, I've listed a few particulars for at least you to, to run across the matter of your mind. You and I know the Christian life is such that we live in a very foreign territory. By that I mean this. We're surrounded by those in the world who don't particularly appreciate your viewpoint and mine. They look upon us, quite frankly, as strangers in a place that doesn't belong to us. They quickly uphold all kinds of things, and I've just listed a very, very few of them. In terms of the Christian life, does it matter if I take drugs? We know in our land marijuana has been legalized in a lot of places. So as a Christian, can I do this? Not as though I intend to be addicted to it, but can I just take a little social marijuana every now and then? What about alcohol? Can I drink a beer occasionally? Is that fine? My preacher oftentimes says it is. Should I believe him or not? Or what about the other features? Could I go dancing if I like that? What about a good type of exercise? They do tell me that it's good for that. The Christian life, again, does it matter what I believe? If I believe drinking's okay, does that make it so? If I believe that gambling is fine, does that make it so? If I believe that sexual promiscuity is fine, does that make it so? If I believe that dancing is very enjoyable and good for the heart, and therefore I'd like to do it, does that make it fine? Does it matter what I believe? Does it matter what you believe? We've seen twice before the answer to be an overwhelming yes. Maybe as we revisit this one one last time, what did Jesus say? Our final authority, of course, is Him. We are not interested in what I might think or what other man might think. What does the Master Himself say? I would ask you to notice, in light of all these things, Jesus stated it very powerfully. I would ask you to note again the language in verse 9. But in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. It would have been serious enough had Jesus ended that statement after the word me. But he went on to elaborate. The very activity by which these individuals had proceeded and the life that they were reflective was such that it led Jesus to characterize it like this. They taught for doctrine. The word doctrine again means body of teaching. They taught for that the commandments of men. Men do have their statements and often their perspectives, don't they? The devil is very happy to say, it doesn't matter what you believe. Dance, gamble, drink, whatever you like, it doesn't matter, the devil will tell us. But you and I know that's a lie. For the devil is a liar and has been so since the beginning, John 8, 44. The lies then that he would have us except the lies which stand opposed to the Word of God, is that lie centered along the thought of it doesn't matter what you believe. As you'll notice near the bottom of that slide, the Word of God gives us a number of commandments, not the least of which are these, be not drunk with wine, Ephesians 5.18. And you'll notice the very thought of the appreciation there would encompass or be involved in any drug, 
taken socially. And the book of Revelation expressly says all of those who are kept out of heaven among the sins of which they're guilty will be, of course, things related to drugs. It's a serious business, isn't it? God has given to you and me a narrow pathway through this life. And oh, how earnestly we need to tread that pathway with carefulness. In addition to that, in 1 Timothy 4.12, what was told to that young preacher Timothy? Be thou an example of the believers, even in youth. I know we at Pippin are blessed with many young people. We're thankful for everybody that's here, and that includes all of our young people. But please be aware, God is very concerned about your spiritual development. He's concerned about your growth in Christ. I know that you face many, and with the school you're starting, perhaps you're going to be in positions where others around you are going to make fun of you. You mean you don't do this? Come after school. Don't you believe them? Not for a minute. Whatever they might encourage you to do, if it's against the law of God, stand up and affirm the truth. You remain faithful to that which is the teaching of God, and I assure you, you won't be disappointed later in life. When you think about that, what is it that was told in 2 Timothy 2.22? Flee youthful lusts. There will be tendencies and temptations, but Paul said flee them. Don't mess around with them. Don't toy with them. Don't try to get as close to them as you can. He said flee them. A lot of times that's good advice for us older ones too, isn't it? Sometimes those lusts that find themselves in matters of youth can continue to be existent even in times of older, older age. Flee youthful lusts. Surely in light of all those things, didn't Jesus say it like this? Anytime that the things of God are replaced by the commandments of men, error has taken place and sin has developed. Reminds us of Jeremiah too, doesn't it? In that ancient day, they of Jeremiah faced the same problem. Jeremiah said it like this in Jeremiah 2.13. He specifically taught with great power and directness about the fact my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they've hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Sad when one replaces the perfect, pure, life-giving blessing of God with what man offers, which is nothing but what holds no water. It's lifeless and it's empty and it's vain. Finally, in light of that, that narrow way of life that you and I mentioned earlier, the fact it does matter what you believe, takes us back to those marching orders of Romans 12. The opening two verses of that chapter read like this, I beseech you therefore, brethren, of the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to the world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The temptation to conform, the temptation to believe that nothing matters when Paul said, you need to be transformed. What you believe does matter. It matters in relation to the church. It matters in relation to the plan of salvation. It matters in relation to the, to the Christian life. With that, our slide closes. One final thought in the lesson is then yours. 
I thought we'd be certainly appropriate to make note of one passage found in the Hebrew letter. And we'll use that to close our lesson this morning. In the sixth verse of Hebrews 11, in the midst of a discussion describing faith and what it means to live a life of faith, the Hebrew writer said, But without faith it is impossible to please Him. For he that cometh to God must believe that He is. You'll notice that's not all He said. The verse doesn't end there. It's not enough just to believe that there is a God. And it's not enough to believe that God is. He says and diligently seek Him. That adverb diligently means with tremendous investigation, scrutiny, and care. One more time, then, it tells us it does matter what we believe. We must diligently seek Him. And in that diligence, we come to the close of our lesson. All of us, then, are given today the opportunity to question and to embed in our heart the thought it does matter what we believe. We want to uphold the truth in every way. The truth that God has delivered and revealed to us. The doctrine of Christ. Are you upholding it by your life? Are you living in faithful harmony with it? If you are, may you continue that walk through life. May I say, though, if you're not... If there's issue in which there is disagreement between the truth of God, maybe you're upholding commandments of men in place of God's doctrine, you do realize that's an error, that's a sin, and currently you need to make change. If we could help you today in doing that, maybe once as a faithful member of the body of Christ, you no longer are. You have been, in fact, influenced by the teaching of the devil and the doctrines of demons. You need to come back to your first love, and you need to do it at once. Ere we close this service today, don't you want to be right with God? Don't you want to live in harmony with His blessed teachings and all the opportunities that He gives us? If you need to come today making confession of error in your life, beseeching God for forgiveness, let us pray to God on your behalf. We'd be happy to do it. If though you're an alien sinner, that is one who's never been a Christian, don't you want today to have access to that greatest of all spiritual blessings only available in Jesus? And if we could be of help to you today, that plan of salvation does include baptism, but before that is your belief and your repentance and your confession. And if we could be of assistance to you today, how delighted we'd be and what a great eternal change for you would take place. If we could be of help to you, why don't you come even now while we stand and while we sing?